We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio here in Taipei today by Xiao Xin Chung. Hi, good to be here. And by Donovan Smith on the telephone from Taichung. I think great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing media coverage, both local and international, regarding China's live fire military exercises around Taiwan. KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah choosing to travel to China on Wednesday of this week, despite heightened cross-strait tensions. And cyber attacks being reported by government and private entities here in Taiwan, while China was conducting its live fire military drills around the island. But we'll begin with the Ministry of National Defence on Wednesday, saying that it remains on high alert, despite China indicating that its military drills in waters near Taiwan have now concluded. Now, defence officials say the final day of those drills saw Chinese aircraft making 36 sorties, while 10 naval vessels were detected close to the Taiwan Strait median line. Now, 17 of those aircraft breached the Taiwan Strait median line, and Beijing was describing the final day of the drills as being a joint air and sea operation. China has also said that such exercises around Taiwan will become routine. And according to the Defence Ministry here, it will remain vigilant and flexibly deploy troop levels based on the level of threat posed by China's military and the tactics it employs. And I spoke with former British Royal Navy Lieutenant, former Senior Superintendent with the Hong Kong Marine Police and former member of the UK Government's Defence Intelligence Staff, Trevor Hollingsby, to get a better understanding of those Chinese exercises around Taiwan over the past week. Good evening, Trevor. Good evening, Gavin. So you've been monitoring the situation over the past week as China has been carrying out exercises in waters and skies around Taiwan. And what have you seen? The Chinese have deployed um, a number of uh, different vessels uh, in the seas around Taiwan and uh, they've carried out numerous overflights of the Taiwan Strait and... uh, they both the ships uh, and the aircraft on this occasion have made a number of crossings of the uh, median line, uh, which which is unusual. And what type of vessels, or surface vessels, were involved? A number of destroyers, um, including uh, one which we've got the name of, the Chang Chun, which is a Type uh, 052C, uh, and another one, the another Type Five. 052C, the He Fei. There's at least another three or four um, destroyers of the type of 052 class have been deployed as well, which we don't yet have the names of. A bit more information is coming out, I think, day by day, and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to fill up on this a bit better later. And there's also been reports that one of the new type 055 destroyers has been there, but um, I don't have anything to confirm that. And we've all seen the maps of where the Chinese forces were reportedly operating. And what do you make of the maps? They're establishing a sort of the most visible presence as, as possible. What is not uh, uh, present, of course, is, is the, any amphibious warfare vessels, uh, which seems to indicate that they are concentrating and demonstrating their abilities to cut Taiwan off. By, in this case, for these, these exercises, they, they established... Um, uh, six no-flying zones, um, no-shipping zones around uh, Taiwan. 
Uh, it did not amount to a de facto blockade, but it was a substantial um, presence of vessels around Taiwan, which was sending a message that they could blockade the place um, if they wanted to. And how close were these vessels to the shores of Taiwan? It's quite difficult to say. There's been a lot of confusing reporting. Um, I, I think some of the reporting of the proximity to Taiwan has been exaggerated. Because, so, of course, uh, there was reports that it was somewhere like nine and a half kilometres off Kaohsiung. Uh, yes, that's, that's, that's feasible, yes. There have been some reports that was closer than that, but that's feasible, yes. And what haven't we been seeing in the past week? As I mentioned, we haven't seen any amphibious ships, which, uh, if the Chinese were demonstrating uh, an ability to invade Taiwan, you would expect. And also, particularly importantly, we haven't seen the Chinese carriers... Uh, although in the days before uh, the commencement of these exercises, the Chinese official media made great play of the Shandong and the Liaoning um, both leaving harbour, but nothing was seen from them after that. And what about submarines? The Chinese uh, official media hinted just before this started that there was a, uh, a nuclear-powered submarine with them, but of course um, there was no sighting of such a vessel, uh, but it's quite plausible. And, of course, American vessels were also operating near the area. Yes, we've got quite an accurate picture of what the Americans put out. Uh, the, the carrier group, which was centred around um, the Ronald Reagan nuclear-powered carrier, remained um, uh, for a lot of time to the east of Luzon um, with the two escorts, the um, uh, Higgins, uh, which was the destroyer, and the um, Antitam, the um, cruiser. Uh, and also we had the Tripoli, which was an amphibious warfare vessel, which is equipped with the F-35 stealth fighter. Uh, and further out was the Essex, which was quite a long way off to the east of Taiwan. And uh, another amphibious warfare vessel equipped with F-35s was the America uh, which, as far as I'm aware, remained important to Cebo. Do you think it could have been American submarines in the area or not? Very likely, at least one, extremely likely. Um, the Western nations in general, um, with carrier battle groups, uh, do deploy a nuclear-powered submarine, those that have them, which is essentially um, uh, UK, uh, USA and France. And do you think possibly if China had sent a carrier into the area the U.S. forces could have expanded or acted slightly more aggressively and moved their position? It's very likely they would have made conspicuous moves to counter the presence of the carrier, yes. And, of course, the American carrier is far better equipped than the Chinese are so far, although the Chinese are making progress. Um, their J-15 fighter is reputedly overweight and underpowered, and the two carriers uh, have conventional uh, obsolete steam-powered machinery. Although they're making progress, they still have difficulties with operational deployments of these ships. And do you think possibly China chose not to move its carriers into the area because it could sort of stoke the ire of Washington? I think that's very likely, yes. Um, and uh, they would have, because of their relative relative inefficiency, they, I think they would have um, a disappointing in- impact. And, of course, the U.S. has hinted that it could carry out more Taiwan Strait transits in the coming weeks. Uh, yes, indeed, they have. Um, and I would think that would do, what they do, what they would do would depend on um, uh, what the Chinese do next in the strait. Then um, I think the, the um, Americans will be watching carefully, and it's quite possible they will very soon do a freedom of navigation um, 
trips down the Solomon Strait, so I think. What about other countries? What about European countries, Britain, France and Germany, maybe also taking transit through the Taiwan Strait for the same reason? I think in the, in the fullness of time, that's probably likely, um, because uh, the, the, the Chinese um, uh, have made a play of saying that they don't consider the Taiwan Strait to be an in, international waterway. And I would think that um, France, UK, and Germany recently has been playing in the Far East as well, um, would certainly, sometime in the future, I think, will be sending ships through there. And what about Japan? Of course, a neighbour of Taiwan and China. Its navy and its military must be a bit nervous about this. I think so. And the Japanese, of course, now have a very, very powerful maritime force. Um, at the moment, uh, their stance, I think, isn't proactive enough to prompt them to do uh, freedom of navigation uh, operations to the Taiwan Strait, but it's probably only a matter of time. Right, and what type of scenarios in regards further such exercises by China could you think we could see in the future? I would expect China to <coughs> continue to demonstrate that they're able to cut Taiwan off, i.e. Uh, establish a blockade. And uh, I would think you would see from time to time some more intensive activity uh, around Taiwan. I wouldn't foresee they're going to stage a practice invasion um, as some people have been postulating, because that would actually be extremely difficult to do, because these days preparations for an invasion would be spotted instantly, and the whole thing would be played out on CNN apart from anything else. And do you think they'd need an excuse? They'd wait for an American official to come here, or do you think they might just carry this out? It's being called the new normal by some experts. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting point. Um, also, of course, there was a rumours going around that our European nations are now poised to send um, delegations of some sort to Taiwan, uh, particularly UK. Um, there have been reports that the party of MPs is intending to go within the next couple of months. And, of course, there's also been talk about the, the West, America being the main one there, and Taiwanese defence officials have learnt something from the Chinese exercises this past week. What could they have learned? Well, it, it provided an opportunity um, for the Americans uh, to um, gather a lot of intelligence, particularly on, on Chinese uh, Navy command and control. Uh, and I'm quite sure that the relevant intelligence would be dispersed to the Taiwanese. One thing they would probably focus on would be um, the Chinese Armed Forces system of dual command, which uh, involves... Um, officers of equal rank on board a warship, one of which is the political officer, or is the more conventional commanding officer. It's widely felt that this um, is inefficient and um, could hamper things operationally. It, it's a Soviet system which was abandoned by the Russians for that reason. And that was me in conversation with former British Royal Navy Lieutenant, former Senior Superintendent with the Hong Kong Marine Police, and a former member of the UK government's Defence Intelligence Staff, Trevor Hollingsby. Moving on now, and of course the Chinese exercises that we just spoke about in depth have of course been front page news both here in Taiwan and globally. And of course the local media has basically taken a line depending on its politics of said newspapers or said television broadcast media outlets, while the international media has taken a well... A rather mixed view of it, some going too far towards one side, as some people have argued, and others basically sticking to the facts. So let's begin with the local media show. I mean, what have you seen local newspaper coverage and local television coverage of the Chinese exercises? 
Well, locally, I mean, the media is all over the place as well. I mean, some, you know, some stations, if you watch, you'll just feel like it's going to be uh, the end of the world. I mean, with the, the Chinese, you know, f- missiles firing all across the place and blaming it all on the uh, Taiwanese government. Um, and in some medias, they are um, just like more, um, more calm and more, you know, uh, factual. So um, it's just like internationally. I mean, the, the medias pay a lot of attention um, to the to the Chinese military drills, um, and some it's rightfully so because uh, this is you know first such a military threat that Taiwan has faced uh, since the ninety ninety six seven you know uh, crisis. Um, but actually on the ground, I observe that people um, you know are more calm this time, right? I mean nobody's moving you know immigrating to other countries in en masse, just like in uh, 1997 I, I've seen a lot of uh, friends and classmates um, suddenly you know migrated to to the United States or some other places when I was in uh, elementary school it was uh, maybe in middle school yeah but this time you know Taiwanese people remain calm um, despite the the media coverage some of them quite frenzy uh, to, to, to be honest so um, this is what I observed um, yeah and Donovan what about the international press? Well, what I found really interesting, and I wrote a piece about this in Taiwan News the other day, uh, is that what struck me is that if you followed the international news right at the very beginning of it, you'd kind of assume that everybody here was going to panic uh, and, uh, you know, we'd all be running around like chickens with the heads cut off. We'd be, you know, hiding in bunkers and, uh, you know, with food piled up and, and water and, uh, and all that. And, uh, you know, like Shaw pointed out, it is in 96, actually, and this is actually including me, I did stock up on food and water at the time. Uh, but, you know, then the international... Uh, press moved on to the story of, oh, everything is perfectly normal in Taiwan, everybody's totally calm, and they picked up on this, and there was a, a whole rash of stories about how Taiwanese were absolutely and totally comfortable and calm and not worried in the least, and I think it all kind of missed the point, because a lot of the press, what you saw is they would interview somebody uh, generally, it would be a, uh, you know, you'd, you'd see an article in the international press and they would interview, typically what it would be, it, was, it would be a professional woman in her 30s in Taipei who would describe, oh, you know, well, you know, there's a little talk about it, but, you know, I'm just going about my life and everything's just fine. But the reality is, if you really look at what what's going on here, the, it's a little the picture's a little bit more complicated. In that, if you looked at the TV news, basically most of the coverage of what was on pretty much all the stations on MOD, uh, which doesn't include CTI, um, you saw you, you'd see that basically it was the main story. Um, and if you follow the stories that they were following on TV, they, they included things like, you know, how to download apps for uh, air raid bunkers, you know, how to find them in your neighborhood. And there was all kinds of these kinds of things. And then if you looked at the news aggregators for local news outlets of, uh, you know, from the local news websites like uh, Yahoo!, all of the top trending stories were dominated 100% 
by stories about what was going on, uh, you know, with these exercises. So, you know, and then I'm talking to people in the streets here in the Tanza district here in Taichung, which is sort of a working class area. And the picture that emerged really is that definitely people were not panicking. People were not as worried as in 95, 96 during the third missile crisis. Um, people were not, I didn't see any stories at all about people stocking up on food or panicking. Uh, I don't know anybody who panicked or, you know, bought tons of rice or any of the other, those things. But people were worried. People are concerned. People were thinking about it. And the analogy that I tried to draw out in the, in the article that I wrote it was, you know, for overseas uh, people was, if you remember right at the very beginning of the pandemic, when there was all these articles coming out that were, you know, the news is flooded with these stories of there's, there's, you know, this horrible new virus spreading and, you know, talking about the death toll and the high death rates and all this. And it was, there was a kind of a, a feeling of dread, but in those early days, it usually hadn't reached your community yet. In other words, it was in places like Italy and Wuhan and all these places that were very kind of far away, and you'd see these images of quarantines and lockdowns, and they're all far away, but what do you do about it? You know, you just sit and you know that this might happen, but you just move on with your life. And that's pretty much like, kind of like how I felt like things were going on, going on here, is that, yes, it's something to be seriously concerned about, something you worry about, but since there's nothing you can do about it, you kind of go on with your life. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, because from what I've seen, you know, around me, uh, there's not much panicking, even less panicking when the first uh, serious pandemic started, you know, back in, um, in, in May. Um, and I kind of attribute reason to uh, several factors. Number one is um, we, we didn't provoke this. Um, you know, a, a, a Speaker of the House of uh, the United States Congress uh, visited, which is her right. Um, and as a host country, we uh, welcome her um, and we appreciate her uh, uh, her visit and her, you know, showing strong support for Taiwan and Taiwan's democratic values and all that. Uh, so we didn't do anything to provoke uh, a strong backlash from China. So, um, and if China is going to be angry, then so be it. I think that's a feeling on the ground that um, people just um, people just you know are, are sick and tired of you know this uh, tantrum that Chinese you know government is constantly throwing. So that's number one. And number two is I think it's a lot to do with uh, with with the Ukrainian war because um, we have been through a lot of news coverage um, and back you know when it first started. Actually, makes Taiwanese people, especially Taiwanese youth, start thinking or preparing mentally about such a such a, a possibility of war. So you've seen that a lot of uh, classes or a lot of associations start giving out, you know, classes about emergency preparedness, about war preparedness. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, peop- uh, groups that's uh, trying to prepare people's mindset and then materials, how to uh, prepare yourself and your family in, in such circumstances. So to some degree, I mean, I'm not saying we are extremely prepared, but to some degree the Ukrainian war make um, the Taiwanese community a little bit 
prepared, uh, at least mentally. And thirdly, we don't have a lot of um, concern about, you know, because we are very confident in our military, actually. Although you see a lot of Taiwanese complain about their uh, their service in the military, uh, complain about the military all the time. But we actually know that Taiwanese, Taiwanese government, Taiwan, has a strong uh, military presence in the region and we can defend ourselves you know they, they, the Chinese can send their warships around Taiwan but they are not going to bl- blockade us because our missiles are ready and we are ready to to fight and defend ourselves I think so this is the sentiment I see on the ground and that's all we have to leave it for the first half of this show but we will return after these rather important commercials Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and amid all the cross-strait heightened tension, KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah chose to travel to China this week, saying he's there to show support to Taiwanese business owners and will not be deterred by China's military exercises. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council had warned Shah about his trip and stressed that it might not be the right time for political party members to visit China due to its military exercises. However, Shah flew to Xiamen, and speaking prior to leaving on Wednesday, he told reporters there might never be a proper time to visit China in the eyes of the government. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen says the trip has not only disappointed the Taiwan people, but could send a wrong signal to the international community about how Taiwanese people perceive China's military threat to the island. Now, DPP lawmaker Lord Zhejiang went a bit further than that and told reporters on Thursday that the KMT is indulging the leadership in Beijing and colluding with China as it seeks to undermine regional peace and security instead of support for Taiwan and its people. Now, Law also claimed that the KMT has a secret political agenda by saying that Shah's visit to China, he might have been meeting with some people he didn't say he was going to meet with. That despite the KMT insisting that the trip was non-political. Now, the KMT has been stressing that the party has always safeguarded the ROC, the safety and well-being of the Taiwanese people, and promoted peaceful, stable developments of cross-strait relations. And the KMT has been describing Shah's China visit this week as a fact-finding delegation to meet with Taiwanese communities to, to uh, that study and live in southern China and that it's an apolitical trip aimed at learning their views and providing assistance. So, Shao, I mean, do you think this was an ill-timed trip? It was, apparently it was organised long before China pulled the military drill thing, but do you think it was ill-timed to go? Or maybe him going could actually be of beneficial assistance to Taiwan? Well, to characterize as yield time is a, is a, is a super, is an understatement, right? So, um, <laughs> the, uh, any, um, a political figure, uh, in Taiwan, uh, you know, visiting China at this time when there's a Chinese military drill, uh, circling around the island, um, is real yield considered and really hurts, you know, the, the the feelings of Taiwanese people, right? Because what 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 could you possibly accomplish by such a trip when 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 the Chinese government is demonstrating such a strong show of force uh, against Taiwan's uh, you know people and government and values? So um, and and of course they're gonna say they they are this trip is non political. They are going to say they just meeting with you know Taiwanese communities over there. But uh, symbolically, just symbolically, just like the president Tsai has said, that this sends the wrong message. 
Because just imagine, if, 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 can you can you imagine a, a, a political figure in Ukraine visiting Russia um, at, at at this uh, height of uh, the Ukraine uh, Ukrainian invasion? Um, so this this is really um, bizarre, and actually it is opposed by you know a lot of. Um, Figures and candidates inside KMT. So I have to say that for them, that it is not they don't unanimously agree on such a trip. But uh, but Mr. Shah, being the vice chairman of the party, it really bears a lot of responsibility to uh, for the fallout from this trip. You know, I mean, Shah summed it up great. I mean, it just is so spectacularly ill-timed. Um, but I, I'd like to slightly shift gears a little bit on the timeline. Uh, to talk about the timeline of this is apparently this trip was planned in June and I think that's particularly significant because that was right when uh, Eric Jew was traveling in the, you know, was traveling or just after he finished his trip to the uh, depending on when in June uh, he, he had finished his trip to the United States to communicate a new policy of a radical change of direction but that, uh, although he was trying to portray it as the KMT has always been this way and saying that the KMT has always been pro-U.S., the KMT has always been anti-communist. In other words, that the party was shifting back toward an ideology that was much more closer to the 1990s KMT um, that was, of course, also far more electable because the public even though they may or may not have agreed with their, you know, their their idea that Taiwan was part of China, they did believe at the time that the KMT was a party that would stand up against the communists on the other side and could be trusted if you elected them into office. Now, the what's interesting is so this was the this trip was planned. At that time. So on the one hand, Eric Jew, the party chair, is going out there and saying to the public, we have this new, you know, we want to really emphasize the KMT has always been anti-communist and pro-U.S., but they were setting up this meeting. Now, I don't know how accurate this is, but apparently the Liberty Times, uh, they they spoke to a KMT insider which said they had originally planned to visit Beijing and meet with the Taiwan Affairs Office minister and some other top people. Um, But then that itinerary was leaked, so they dropped it. And I'll read here what the what what uh, with the translation of what the uh, KMT insider said. It was an invitation for the delegation to visit by the Beijing leadership, and the original theme focused on new opportunities across the, the Taiwan Strait and the KMT's role in history. But KMT officials added to the main agenda how to dilute anti-China sentiment in Taiwan and explain the KMT's current. U.S. friendly stance. Now, if that's true, essentially what's happening is is that the KMT is speaking out of two sides of its own mouth. Uh, now, this has also been a regular pattern over the last few months. There was the big Straits Forum uh, in Xiamen recently, where the KMT was taking a stance promoting the 1992 consensus and was also talking about how the DPP was to blame for all the problems in the cross-strait relationship, not China. In other words, they were saying that the democratically elected 
representatives of Taiwan were the ones to blame, not the Chinese Communist side. Meanwhile, they're trying to tell the voting public here in the United States that they are anti-communist, pro-U.S., pro-democracy, and pro-national uh, defense to defend against China on the other hand. So it's not just the spectacularly ill-timed nature of this. It's the complete double message that they seem to be sending out of one side of their mouth to one group of people being the United States and Japan and local voters and to China and to the deep blue base base on the other. And they decided to go ahead with this right in the middle of this, which seems to kind of essentially make it absolutely totally clear that they are doing this, that they're do- engaging in this total double speak, double game. And because they timed this so spectacularly badly and decided to not cancel it and to go through with it, it this has now focused a lot of people's attention on this dichotomy between their dual messages to two different constituencies. And that's, I think, not only is it, as Shell noted, spectacularly poorly timed, it also makes their own party messaging look really two-faced. And I think also a lot of people within the KMT, even some people on the, on the fairly deep blue side, found this uh, rather disturbing and uh, poorly timed, poorly thought out, and definitely embarrassing to the party. Yes, um, I have to touch on the point that this united outcry against you know Mr. Shah's trip actually proves very well uh, the the point of uh, a piece in New York Times saying that the the Chinese military drills around Taiwan actually um, limits the options that the Chinese government has you know uh, in terms of trying to achieve unification with with Taiwan because traditionally they they use carrots and sticks right um, and right now they are, are so much emphasizing on the stick part that the carrots is just not going to work so if you think back before you know um any any time there's a, a KMT official uh visiting China a very often a very possible they, they're going to bring back a lot of goodies right from the Chinese government whether it's like additional imports of Taiwanese um stuff or other you know economic you know carrots so right now i mean just being so much uh Taiwanese public being so much against this trip shows that uh, the tools in Chinese government's arsenal uh, for Taiwan has been really, really limited. And Xiao, do you think that Eric Ju should have maybe persuaded his deputy chairman maybe to delay the trip for a few weeks? Uh, I, I like to believe that he tried. Um, but for some reason, <laughs> the, 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 the internal deliberation is not privy to me. But um, I, I really hope they try. And I'm not sure that why, why they come to the conclusion that they shouldn't delay it. And what about- yeah, there seems to be no indication that Eric Ju actually tried to stop him at all. <laughs> and what about some former KMT officials? Mr. Ma Ingjo, I mean, he's been very quiet. <laughs> yeah, he's been oddly quiet As with a lot of, you know, um, KNT uh, officials and past uh, political prominent figures. Um, and we are still waiting, waiting for them to make some kind of a statement on, on this current situation. 
And Shell, do you think this could hurt the KMT in November's local elections, or do you think the public would have found something else to worry about come November? Uh, to some degree, it, it will, but actually, because in this election, it's more about local elections. So, uh, the, because what, whatever, when, whenever you elect a, a city council member or, or uh, like a, a governor, or local governor, um, the Xianzang, I mean, they, they're gonna affect. They're not going to affect, you know, Taiwan's, you know, uh, national relations with with China. So it, it will bear some people's mind, but not, not to some extent, much less than in the in the next election where they elect the president. Yeah, no, Shao's absolutely correct. I mean, the, when it comes to the national elections, historically, the people are much more concerned when you're talking about your national legislators and uh, the president that, you know, obviously they have a lot of impact on foreign affairs, particularly in dealing with China. And traditionally, voters have generally ignored that when it comes to dealing with uh, local politicians, where the KMT tends to be very, very strong. Um, the KMT's lost two national landslide elections because uh, their ideology and approach toward China is, is outside of uh, the opinion of mainstream voters within Taiwan. However, how this is going to play out in this current election, I think, is a really interesting question. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with First of all, these missteps, like Andrew Xia going to China, uh, it sends a very bad message. And I think that Taiwanese are rallying in, in, a, in a way and showing solidarity in a way that you haven't seen before. You'll also notice that uh, President Tsai Ing-wen's approval ratings have, for the most part, stayed above 50% for her entire uh, second term, which is another factor that is kind of unprecedented. And so you've got that, you've got the solidarity of people, you know, of people sta- standing together. Um, but we don't know how that plays out at the polls because the, these are both kind of unprecedented for, for this, you know, so we don't really know. On the And also, we don't know what China's going to do uh, in the run-up to the 20th uh, Party Congress. And that is going to be held, you know, sort of in the roughly in the time frame. I believe November is what they're targeting, which is also when our elections are held here. So you've got a situation where there may be, uh, and, I, and I'm one of those who's of the opinion that uh, the, the, the China's moves on Taiwan, the aggressiveness, the changing of the status quo, was recently was all done primarily with an eye on a domestic audience within China rather than to achieve foreign policy or annexation goals of Taiwan. And so they have signaled that they're going to continue this very aggressive, very violent kinds of this kind of behavior, and it's probably going to keep going on until November. And will this weigh on voters' minds? We don't have any data. We don't have any precedent for this. So we really just don't know. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Because, yes, uh, you know, as Xiao noted, yeah, traditionally we don't here in Taiwan vote on 
Taiwanese, you know, invite um, local elections, your city councilors, your county councilors, your county commissioners, you know, your city mayors, because they don't have much impact on on international affairs. But it might this time, but we just don't know. Moving along now, and along with Chinese military exercises over the past week, Taiwan was also the target of numerous cyber attacks. Now, the Criminal Investigation Bureau first announced that it was looking into said cyber attacks on convenience stores and government facilities shortly after US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan. Now, the government agencies affected then included the Presidential Office, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the National Taiwan University was also a target. Now, the National Communications Commission says an initial investigation of that found they affected private companies that were affected, not the government agencies I'm talking about here, private companies, were in fact using Chinese software in their digital signage systems and other platforms they were using. Now, the cyber attacks continued over the weekend and into this week, with Formosa Television on Wednesday reporting a series of cyber attacks. Now, the Department of Infrastructure on Cyber Security says FTV was the only broadcast media here to have reported a distributed denial-of-service attack and it reported information security breaches on Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. Now, the KMT has been quick to accuse the government of being somewhat to blame for these said cyber attacks, arguing that it's been wasting its cyber security budget. Now, speaking at a press conference on Monday of this week, KMT lawmaker Lee Thurway said the government's annual budget for cyber security last year stood at 450 million NT, but it appears to have thrown all that money away. So, Xiao, you're a Techie cybersecurity attacks. Should the government have done more? Uh, yes, and and actually they, they they are doing more. I mean, but cybersecurity it's it, it's an issue that's more and more front and center in, in any country's national defense discussion, right? Um, and and this time we'll see you know some instances where the cyber attackers succeeded. Uh, especially you see the, the signage problems in uh, in 7-Eleven in, in Taiwanese rail systems uh, demonstrating, you know, the, the, the Chinese, you know, propaganda um, signs. Uh, but but just like uh, you mentioned, those are private, you know, companies that, that use Chinese software, which is very, very much prone to, you know, uh, requests from uh, Chinese government because every any Chinese software needs to, uh, quote-unquote, have a back door open to the uh, Chinese officials whenever they, they need to uh, get in um, so if you, from that instance you will see that more uh, serious is the attack on you know governmental websites for for example the presidential palace or or um, we see that the, the Taiwanese university's website has been hacked as well uh, those are more uh, substantial because they demonstrated that cyber, the cyber attackers succeeded in penetrating you know the governmental servers which are uh, not, not like you know the, the private company servers uh, that they're using Chinese software that, that has a backdoor to Chinese government. So if they find a way to get in, I mean, they may even find a way to get into some other governmental servers. So that, that indicates a wider uh, problem and wider threat. And, and indeed, the, the, the government needs to invest more on, on this part. And actually, they are. I mean, we just witnessed the, the uh, grand opening of the new ministry, which is the Ministry of uh, Digital Development, um, uh, chaired by uh, none other than 
uh, previous digital minister, Audrey Tang. Um, and one of the uh, central pillars of that ministry will be to strengthen our uh, uh, cyber defense. Um, so we will see a lot of uh, projects and, and budgets being devoted in this area. Um, and, and hopefully uh, next time around we'll have a stronger defense against such attacks. Well, I, I'm thinking that, you know, regarding the National Taiwan University hack, I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty sure that Lin Jin was pretty disappointed about where it was targeted at. But, um, you know, I think the fundamental thing that uh, the, 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 there's a one big fundamental problem, and that is it's not even so much the budget. It's that there's a massive shortfall in the number of people who can and really know how to conduct uh, and take care of local security. Now, this new digital ministry, uh, you know, as Xiao noted, uh, under Audrey Tong, I think that is a huge step forward. And if there's anyone who can come up with a creative solution using limited resources to solve complex problems, it's Audrey Tong. Um, you know, she's someone who I think has won, you know, many times kind of pulled the uh, government's uh, chestnuts out of the fire, so to speak. Um, you know, so that's a, a, a huge positive step forward, and I, I think that is something, and the initiatives and, you know, creative approaches coming out of that are something I'm really looking forward to. But there's a fundamental lack of of talent that the, that companies and government, and they're all scrambling to try and find these people, but there's a fundamental lack of talent that they can find to throw at the problem. On the other hand, you've got uh, those people that are on the front lines in Taiwan who are dealing with this problem are probably now some of the most experienced, best people in the world. So the obvious solution, uh, you know, outside of some creative solutions that Audrey Tong might come up with, is, of course, to work with other countries. And there's been some initiatives on this. So, Xiao, Taiwan thinking of cooperating with other countries to step up and boost its cybersecurity efforts. Yeah, that's definitely the, the trend that, that we need to go forward with, right? Because uh, if you look at, you know, Taiwan's digital um, development and defense, uh, you'll see that it's great that we finally have the grand opening of uh, such a ministry. But in terms of timing, we lag seriously behind Japan, Korea, not to even mention um Estonia in, in, in Europe, right? Because if you look at Estonia, um, they, they're actually in a similar situation as Taiwan. They have a, a threatening neighbor which has been uh, mounting cyber attacks against Estonia systems as early as since 1990s. So from a very early time, they, they have established themselves as a cyber uh, security expert in the region. And then nowadays, they are even exporting you know, their cyber security expertise all around the world. So uh, Taiwan has a lot of catch up. And we uh, certainly have a, a lot of expectations on Minister uh, Audrey Tan, uh, who is, is going to be you know, spearheading this effort. Um, but this really needs to be front and center of, of, of you know the Audrey Tan's thinking in, in when when trying to set the priority of ministry. And I hope I hope cybersecurity is one of them. And that's what we have to leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio here in Taipei today by Xiao Xin Chung. Good night, everyone. And on the telephone from Taichung by Donovan Smith.
And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.